Thank you, Mark. Um, although this paper is really about the uh, history of free trade uh, and food prices in the 19th century, uh, I will try and bring it a bit up to date and make connections with uh, recent debates. Uh, and as I began to think about this paper last week, uh, two news items attracted my attention. Uh, the first concerned recent inflation figures and the fear that Brexit heralded rising food prices, uh, a possibility which had been little discussed during the referendum debate, uh, but this provides perhaps an indication of future controversy. Uh, and a reminder that food prices in the context of trade policy have been a vital dimension of political debate in the past, as we'll discover uh, this afternoon. Uh, the second issue uh, was that of farm subsidies uh, raised by the Campaign for the Protection of Rural England uh, in the wake of the government's guaranteeing those subsidies until 2020. Uh, more interestingly, perhaps, the CPRE urged the reshaping of subsidies in order to protect small rather than large industrial farmers, uh, a proposal countered by the National Farmers Union uh, by the case for food security linked to large farmers. Uh, and here we have a direct reminder of the function of the Corn Laws repealed in 1846, uh, but which had operated up until that point as a subsidy or rent for farmers, uh, very directly in the way the common agricultural policy operates. And uh, so these are two portents, if you like, uh, of future debate. Uh, and subsidies are already a keen topic of debate among some historians, lawyers, and economists uh, in an EU context, uh, as with Luca Rubini's project uh, at Birmingham. Uh, but this debate will now need a British dimension, for which the Corn Laws provide an important benchmark. Uh, I'll return to these themes later, but let me start with the hungry 40s. Uh, if only to remind you that this powerful and evocative term was only invented in 1903, uh, as perhaps Sarah will elaborate, so I won't say more about that. Uh, but although the term was not used in the 1840s, uh, the important point to make is that the campaign of free traders opposed to the Corn Laws, epitomised by Richard Cobden and the Anti-Corn Law League, evoked over the whole country the spectre of the landed aristocratic interest battening on the welfare of the poor, uh, and focused on the Corn Laws as the cause of dear bread. They became advocates of repeal, in part, as a defence of the living standards of the people against the class interests of a parasitic aristocracy. Uh, and this is essentially akin to the case against the EU as a giant con uh, protectionist conspiracy, uh, which has been made by many campaigners. Uh, and the comparison between the uh, common agricultural policy uh, and the Cornlers has also been made by reputable uh, academic economists uh, such as Bliss. Uh, in this vein too, during the referendum campaign, the Corn Laws were cited 
uh, by the Brexit economists led by Patrick Minford, who argued that Brexit, like repeal in 1846, would lead to cheaper food prices. Uh, but we'll see too in the course of this afternoon that the threat of rising food prices did become a staple, as Mark has already mentioned, uh, in the debate over tariffs in Edwardian Britain, uh, and also again in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, when the Agriculture Act of 1947 and entry into the common market were opposed by bodies such as the Cheap Food League. Uh, on this model, with that precedent in mind, uh, it's not implausible to foresee a major debate over subsidies for agriculture. Uh, and in opposition to any attempts to restrict imports of food as a threat to living standards. Um, this may even extend to drink. There may be a debate about cheap wine. Should we import um, wine which is uh, fed by EU subsidies in the future? Uh, will there be a case for countervailing tariffs uh, to exclude, uh, as it were, uh, bounty-fed imports? Uh, and this is a reminder that the debate over the Corn Laws was followed by a huge debate over sugar in the 19th century, whether Britain should import, free of duty, uh, subsidy-fed continental beet sugar uh, at the expense of imperial cane sugar, uh, a debate which the free traders won. After 2020, if Britain decides not to subsidise agriculture or does so at lower rates, should the common agricultural policy supported continental farmers be allowed to export duty-free to Britain? Uh, here, I think, is a hornet's nest ready to swarm. Now, before leaving the Anti-Corn Law League and its arguments, uh, let me suggest, too, that the modus operandi of the Anti-Corn Law League are also worth attention. Uh, in fact, Sarah and I, last year, I think it was, uh, took part in a blog debate on this theme uh, which focused on the innovative methods employed by the Anti-Corn Law League. Uh, its use of the equivalent of social media, its campaigning outside the framework of party politics. Uh, and this may also be pertinent in the way in which political discussion and mobilization on issues such as subsidies and prices takes place in the future uh, as part of a wider social movement rather than simply a parliamentary debate. Uh, interestingly too, uh, the body which campaigned against the Corn Laws, the Anti-Corn Law League, uh, appealed essentially to consumers. Uh, and the subsequent defence of free trade in Britain depended on appealing to the electors, to the electorate, sorry, as consumers, not as producers seeking to protect select jobs. Uh, this was well understood by the Liberal Party in the 19th century, uh, which meant there was no need for a distinct consumers' party. Only in the 20th century, with the decline of the Liberal Party, did specifically consumer defence bodies emerge. Uh, part of the success of Brexit, by contrast, lay in its appeal to producers, fearing displacement by migration, rather than, as in the past, displacement by cheap 
manufactured imports. Uh, so there's been a significant change in the nature of uh, political appeals. Uh, and although the Remain campaign articulated general economic fears, uh, it did not, I think, appeal specifically to voters as consumers. Uh, let me turn then to some wider aspects of the rise of free trade in Britain uh, following the repeal of the Corn Laws. Uh, and in a way, the rent-seeking behaviour of the landed interest, which had supported the laws, uh, was paramount in the eyes of the Anti-Corn Law League, uh, but it may not have been paramount uh, in the eyes of the Prime Minister, who was responsible for repealing the Corn Laws, Sir Robert Peel, after all himself, as were his party followers, all major landowners, or mostly so. Uh, but certainly Peel shared some uh, opinions in common with the Anti-Corn Law League. Uh, and in repealing the Corn Laws, he claimed that he wanted to make England a cheap country to live in. Uh, this suggests that he accepted the free trade case that the Corn Laws raised prices, particularly in bad harvest years. Uh, more broadly, Peel had been in the process of revising a whole range of import duties, many of them affecting food, including duties on butter, tea, sugar. Uh, but food prices and the cost of living were directly related in Peel's mind to the threat of revolution. Uh, and Britain, between 1837 and 1842, had experienced the worst economic crisis of the 19th century uh, accompanied by the greatest degree of working class mobilization in the Chartist movement. Uh, cheap food for Peel was a form of social insurance, which now undermined the case for protection and the argument for self-sufficiency. After 1846, free trade was consistently interpreted as a guarantee of working class affluence and this became a central pillar in its defence against threats, including those of fair trade and of tariff reform. Uh, the Corn Laws then also relate directly to the case for food security, uh, which the NFU highlighted last week. Uh, and in this context, it's worth remembering that the Corn Laws had been introduced in 1815 in response to calls for what was then considered food security. The need for Britain to be self-sufficient uh, at the end of the Napoleonic Wars uh, should the risk of French domination of continental Europe revive. After 1815, rapid population growth uh, with associated Malthusian fears of its outrunning food supply had undermined substantially arguments for self-sufficiency. Uh, for Sir Robert Peel and his ministry, it was repeal which by opening Britain to world suppliers guaranteed future food security. Peel's fear had been that the uncertainty of the British market 
uh, to foreign exporters discouraged foreign food production. Uh, and that, as reports showed in the 1840s, there was a growing European-wide grain shortage, which threatened food supply for Britain unless a regular trade was established. Uh, on this point, too, just to correct one error which I've spotted in the food security literature, uh, repeal opened Britain to world suppliers, uh, not as is suggested in some of that literature, to empire producers. Uh, the first beneficiary of the repeal of the Corn Laws was Russia. Uh, and in fact, repeal meant the abandonment of imperial preference for grain, uh, although that preference had been granted to Canada as recently as 1843. Uh, this was a decisive switch to the world economy uh, and away from the imperial economy. Uh, and just to add a sort of footnote, um, one of the problems with Canadian food supply was that, in fact, um, American grain just crossed the frontier and entered as if it was Canadian. Uh, a reminder of what porous borders can do, uh, which might be interesting in the context of the Irish uh, broader in, in the future. Um, after 1846, the feud security argument uh, did raise its head from time to time, uh, notably with a report into food supply in wartime uh, in 1905, uh, when people had uh, in prospect uh, a future war. Uh, at that time, the tariff reformers, led by Joseph Chamberlain, with whom Theresa May, for some reasons, has recently been compared, um, favoured food supply but from the empire, uh, but their arguments were decisively rebutted. Uh, the case for free food from world markets uh, was retained, uh, which was based on cordial ties with the United States and a strong navy, which were the basis of British war planning before 1914. Imperial self-sufficiency became significant again in the 1930s, but never decisively outweighed the case for a strong Anglo-American access to British trade. Now, whether food security will prove an acceptable defense for large farm subsidies uh, will provoke uh, an interesting debate uh, in the future, uh, particularly for those Brexiteers who belong to the free market libertarian tendency uh, opposed, one imagines, to subsidies in all forms. Now, what other aspects of the repeal of the Corn Laws uh, might have resonance today. Uh, one primary point concerns the implications for trade bargaining in the wake of Brexit. Uh, this is going a bit beyond food prices, but I hope it sets the context. Uh, Britain's repeal of her Corn Laws instituted the first example of a great power opening her markets uh, unilaterally to the world. Uh, policy many considered a dangerous experiment. Now this model of unilateral trade liberalization still has supporters today, 
and has been practiced by some countries, particularly in Latin America, uh, in the uh, 1980s and 1990s. A unilateralism would avoid trade bargaining uh, by proclaiming free imports, as in 1846, or at least low import duties, with pro-Brexit economists arguing for WTO rates. Um, but it's worth noting, too, why Britain adopted unilateralism in 1846. Uh, for in part, it was a reaction against largely fruitless trade talks over the previous 15 years. Talks with France, Germany, Spain, Portugal, Brazil, which seemed endless, consumed much time and energy, and led to infinite bureaucratic tangles and diplomatic complications. Far better, it seemed, to Sir Robert Peel, the Prime Minister, and Gladstone at the border trade, to liberate oneself from haggling and to act solely in Britain's interest by opening her markets freely to the world's products. At a time, of course, when services traded freely and when Britain had no restrictions on immigration. Now, some dreamt at this time of Britain as a free market paradise, a dream which, of course, has continued to uh, inspire later free marketeers, uh, such as Sir Keith Joseph. Uh, but it's also worth noting, I think, especially given the occasional note of Commonwealth nostalgia that accompanied the referendum, that 1846, uh, as I've hinted already, represented the nail in the coffin of imperial preference, which was gradually eliminated over the next decade, and backbench Tory dreams of an imperial Zolverine proved difficult to resurrect. Now, if I can just follow up this sort of story of trade liberalisation uh, and whether unilateralism was the best means towards it, uh, in fact, trade liberalisation in the 1860s was to see a return to bilateralism. Uh, and this was led again by Britain in 1859 uh, when she re-entered negotiations with France, which led to the Anglo-French Commercial Treaty of 1860, uh, for which the British negotiator was the former leader of the Anti-Corn Law League, Richard Cobden. Uh, Cobden expected the talks with France to last perhaps three months. Uh, but they lasted for 13 months, uh, a cautionary tale for today when trade is vastly more complex than it was in 1859-60, when trade was simply a matter of tariffs and other regulatory barriers were of little significance. Uh, but it is the wider outcome which is important, for the Anglo-French Commercial Treaty acted as a model for France to negotiate further treaties across Europe with concessions generalised through the most favoured nation clause. As a result, by the end of the 1860s, Europe was integrated by 60 or so treaties, creating, in effect, the first common market. Now, this was not specifically a customs union, but interestingly, some British free traders by the 1860s argued for an international congress which would set common tariffs and common rates of taxation, 
uh, a premonition of the later single market. Now, economic historians are divided uh, on the benefits of this bilateralism in terms of growth rates, uh, but it has been argued that Europe saw greater trade liberalization between 1859 and 1870 than in each of the GATT rounds between 1947 and 1994. Uh, other gains from these commercial treaties included stability. For most treaties were for 10 years, and they precluded the resort to rising tariffs, which followed when those treaties ended in 1879. After 1879, most of Europe returned to protection. England was the only major power which continued to adhere to free trade, with its voters firmly acting in their interests as consumers uh, and refusing to return to subsidies for the landed interest as in the past or to introduce them for manufacturers by the 1870s suffering from price-lowering foreign competition, uh, with some manufacturers wishing to retaliate against unfair competition. Now, one further aspect of the rise of free trade in England, uh, whose implications might prove pertinent, uh, concerns taxation. Uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws was preceded and in some ways made possible by the introduction of the first peacetime income tax in 1842. Uh, that provided a vital cushion for any diminution of customs revenue uh, as duties were lowered. But it also heralded a deliberate readjustment from indirect to direct taxation. Uh, and part of the case for free trade rested on the switch towards income tax, partly on economic grounds, but also on grounds of social justice. Uh, and given the social fears of the 1840s, Sir Robert Peel, as Prime Minister, uh, was keenly aware of the merits of the redistribution of taxation from the poor to the rich. Now, I haven't seen any great debate on fiscal policy uh, in the, the wake of the EU referendum, um, but I think that strikes some people at least it, its rate as a Brussels styles tax, uh, and it's not implausible to see the opportunity uh, for a progressive party to seize on Brexit uh, for a rebalancing of the burden of taxation. Uh, let me conclude with two more historical points. Um, I've highlighted so far three or four aspects of the rise of free trade in the 1840s and how they intersect with issues raised by Brexit. Food prices, subsidies, international trade policy, the first common market, and taxation. I hear that the 1840s set a pattern which remained in place until the 1930s. Uh, but whose memory, as Sarah will show, survived much longer. The 1840s were still regularly invoked in the 1930s, uh, deemed a period 
of comparable hunger. Uh, but I also was struck by two post-1945 phenomena. Firstly, the early literature of the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations made a strong case for the relevance of the parallel with Britain in the 1840s. Uh, the London Publicity Department of the Food and Agricultural Organization looked back to the hungry 40s as a period of intense misery, but one followed by prosperity and productivity. Uh, and it asked, will our troubled 40s end in the same manner? Uh, interestingly, Boyd Orr, FAO's first Director General, regularly made comparisons uh, with the hungry 40s, uh, both as a member of the House of Lords uh, and in several talks uh, on the radio. Uh, linking world food control, freedom from want, and peace. Uh, secondly, though, it's also clear that some of those who had been avid free traders for generations were also keen opponents of Britain's entry into the common market. Uh, they were supporters of the Keep Britain Out movement and the Cheap Food League. Uh, but the point I want to make is that for both groups, the Corn Laws remained of key juristic importance. For the first, as part of a globalist agenda. For the second, as part of a Little England mentality. Uh, in vastly differing contexts, the repeal of the Corn Laws and the rise of Free Trade England remained part of public consciousness in the 1940s and the 1950s in a way that is no longer the case. Uh, hence, I hope the benefits uh, that today will show of drawing once again on the memory and legacy of the hungry 40s. Thank you.